Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that it reveals to us your great plan unfolding, how you are building your church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And Lord, you are good and kind and holy and just and sovereign. And from the very beginning, after Christ's resurrection and Pentecost, you have built your church and you are building your church. Lord, help us to be followers of Christ and help us to be about this same goal and same purpose of building churches and planting churches. Lord, we love you. We thank you for those that have gone before us. We thank you for working in them and giving us a record of what happened and who you are and what a Christian is. And Lord, we do pray that you will help us to be disciple makers, to honor you with all that we are and all that we think and all that we do. We love you, Father. We commit this time to you and we pray that you be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Again, tonight's service will be uh, kind of a, a dual purpose. Uh, the Institute won't be going at 4.30. I'm going to do it at 6. But I'm going to kind of give an overview of the three main eschatology views. That is the study of end times. I'm going to give those three main views. I think everybody, I'm going to make it so that everybody can be here and get an idea of what it is. We're going to go over amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism in the simplest forms. I'm going to explain what those three words mean and then show you uh, their strengths and their weaknesses. And we'll attempt to go through that tonight. So please try to come back out if you're able. If you want a simple overview of that concept, the eschatology view, we're going to go over those three views. What is the primary calling of a Christian? At this point, if I could, if it was a class setting, I would get you all to answer that question. What is the primary calling of the Christian? Well, to obey God, right? To glorify Him, right? But what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be making disciples, right? Is one person able to make a disciple? It's a trick question. It's a, real, it's a trick question. Can, can I make a disciple by myself? I see heads yes and heads no. I would argue you can't. Let me tell you why. Let me explain. If we walk through the book of Acts, what we're seeing is a pattern being set out. And that pattern is, is that the church makes disciples. That one person may lead somebody, but then you come into a group, and that this group begins to work in people. Some of you all have gifts that I don't have. Some of you are better encouragers than I am. Some of you are better counselors than I am. Some of you are better teachers than I am. I would argue that... Stephen Samick and Mark Samick have some teaching gifts that I don't have. They're great teachers. To make a disciple, you need the whole church to make a disciple. So if you were to ask me what is the primary uh, way that you make a disciple is, is that you bring a person into a church. They, you evangelize them. They get saved and they come into a body. And that body then helps to make a disciple. That's how God made it. He established it. That's why churches are so important. That's why I'm much bigger on local church planting ministries than I am on uh, those side ministries, those come-alongside-of ministries that churches have or people have a lot of times. They talk about parachurch organizations. What is one of the reasons why our, 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 our mission statement at Grace Bible Church is to to support church planters? The answer is, is because it's the church that makes disciples. And so we want to have churches out there. Aren't we seeing that throughout the book of Acts? Everywhere Paul goes, what's he do? He plants a church. And he trains up people to then raise up more people, right? And to make disciples. That's what we're seeing. As a matter of fact, what happened last week with Apollos, after Apollos becomes a believer, where does he go? He goes back to Corinth, where Paul wasn't. Why? Because he was going to water what Paul had so uh, sown. That's what the church is all about. 
What we see in Acts chapter 9 is another church is planted. One person can't make a disciple from start to the end. I would argue that you need a whole body of Christians to do that. We're all real good at it. Some of you are administratively gifted in ways that I am not. Like my father-in-law, he's much more administratively gifted than I am. He's able to organize things and do things. You need that to make a disciple. Otherwise, the church falls apart. You've got to have administrators, people that do those kind of things. We do this all together. So today, we're going to see why it's so important that for church planting ministries, that we plant churches. If we look at the New Testament, it's the only model we see for building the universal church. We don't see uh, go-it-alone guys. We don't see people out there by themselves, and all they do is go out there on their own, they are always working to build a church, to make a church to help grow things. There's a, a lot of people that think that you don't have to go to church and you, you can just kind of do your own thing and you can build people and, and, and make disciples all by yourself. Well, I would argue, no, you need to plug them into a body and work with them and grow with them because you have weaknesses. You have deficiencies. I have deficiencies. We need everybody in the church to do it. The New Testament shows this, doesn't it? Haven't we seen this all the way through the book of Acts? I would argue that the book of Acts is a, is a proof text for the local body, the local church. Everywhere Paul goes, he does what? Starts another church. And what's he do? He goes back to the church and makes sure they're what? Growing. When we read the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, what do we see? He's setting up and establishing elders and setting up and establishing deacons. Why? So the church can function, so that the church then grows and builds and makes more disciples. That's what we're about, right? That's what we see in the book of Acts. So today we're going to focus our attention on another church plant. Arguably, this is the most important church of the New Testament period, the church in Ephesus. We see this start in Acts Chapter 19. Actually, it started with Apollos. It appears that Apollos, along with Aquila and Priscilla, were part of the groundwork at the church in Ephesus. So let's look at the setting for the church plant in verse 1. Notice it says, It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, in other words, Apollos had left. Remember, we saw to Achaia, but Achaia talks about a region where Corinth is. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. If we look at this map, we see this is the third missionary journey. And in the process, we see that Paul, if you remember last time on the second missionary journey, he got to this place and he was about to go into Asia. And what happened? The Holy Spirit said no. So he went up and then he was going to go in here and it said no. And he went this way. Remember? So he never got to Asia. The third missionary trip, however, he goes into Asia and goes directly after he, after he ministers to those in Galatian area. He goes on to Ephesus. At the same time, Apollos had just left to go to Achaia. What's in Achaia? Corinth. Okay? Right here, I think. All right, so ultimately, Apollos was there. He leaves. He goes over to minister to these people, and Paul shows up in Ephesus. And he comes there and he finds these disciples. So what is a disciple? Short term for a disciple is a learner. Somebody who is being taught. A follower. The word disciple in the New Testament, especially in Luke and Acts, is often and most of the time, all the time in Luke and Acts, referred to as Christ's disciple. A disciple of Christ. In this case... It is argued a little bit, but we'll talk about it as we go along. He finds some disciples of Jesus, I believe. Today we're going to see that there are four key elements to starting this church and planting this church in Ephesus that should be a part of our church and a part of every church, a biblical church. Let's look at these four elements. First, there's the spirit-filled disciples of Jesus, verses 2 to 7. The fearless proclaimers of the gospel in verse 8. The determined disciple makers in verse 9, and then the mission-minded disciples in verse 10. All four of these elements are essential for a successful church to be planted. 
You must have spirit-filled disciples. You must have fearless proclaimers. You must have disciple-makers. And you must have a mission-minded disciple and disciples in the church. Otherwise, it's not a church. This is what a church is. And this is what a church plant should look like as it grows and builds. So we first, we're going to start with this first element, the spirit-filled disciples of Jesus. Look at verses 2 to 7. We see in verse 2, it says, He said to those disciples, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now, in these two verses, in verse 1 it says, He found some disciples. And then in verse 2 it says, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they are what? Believers that are disciples. So what is that? Is that a Christian? That was a question that was asked this morning. Are Old Testament saints Christians or not? Well, we're going to see that this really does fit into this transition period. There's four options for who these disciples are here. Who are these guys? Who are these 12 men? As at verse 11 states, there was a, 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 in all about 12 men. Who are they? Well, there's four options. And I don't normally do this, but I want to go through this because I think it's important because you hear all these different views and it affects things. As a matter of fact, if you look at verse 3, um, look at verse 3. He said, into what then were you baptized? And they say, into John's baptism. The idea here is, is that often people will use this verse and talk about, have you received the Holy Spirit yet? Have you gotten that second filling yet? How many of you have heard that before? The second filling, this is the section for the charismatics. They use this. Because these people are believers that are disciples, but they don't have the Holy Spirit. Is that possible today? Well, that's a trick question. Is it possible in Acts 19? Well, that's the question, isn't it? That's what we have to lay out. This is what we need to figure out. Let's look. There's three or there's four possibilities. One, these disciples are, and you might want to write some of these down because this is important. They are believers in Jesus who have not yet received the Holy Spirit. All charismatics, Pentecostals, all those in the room say, Amen. These are believers in Jesus who have not yet received the Holy Spirit. That's what they say this is. Okay? Second, they are believers who had the Spirit but did not know they had the Spirit. Who's that? Well, I think Apollos, we saw last week. Look back at verse 25. It says, This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in, and this is with the article, the Spirit. He had the Spirit, but yet, and he was teaching accurately, but we know that Priscilla and Aquila took them aside, took him aside and retaught him and instructed him a little better. So I think the Apollos appears to be a believer because he's not mentioned as being rebaptized. Believer that had the Spirit but didn't know he had the Spirit. Do you understand? So are these people like them? Because after all, it's the same context. Third, they are regenerate believers in a coming Christ like Old Testament saints that had not received the Holy Spirit. This is the transitional believer view. And I'll talk about this as we go along. And then finally, they are only disciples of John the Baptist who had not heard about Jesus at all. They are unbelievers. They are unbelievers. Let's walk through these. Now, everybody in the room, you probably put a check by the one that you think it is in your notes. Don't, don't, don't say it. Put a check. There is good evidence for... Four of them. I would say three of them. Three out of the four. Let's work through them. I think the verse, first view is not likely because numerous other New Testament passages explain that a genuine believer and disciple of Jesus is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. In other words, as soon as you become a believer, you're indwelt by the Spirit. Many passages in the New Testament talk about this, and we're going to show them. Okay? Second. I think the second view is false because it appears that 
they are baptized again as stated in verse 5. In verse 5, notice, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So, I would say that they're not like Apollos in that they don't know who Jesus is completely. Okay? I do believe they've repented. That kind of gives you a hint to where I think they are. But they're rebaptized. It says in verse 5 that they're rebaptized. Then I don't think fourth view is I think the fourth view is false because the terminology of being a disciple and believing in verses 1 and 2. I strong this is a difficult one and but just so you know I'm disagreeing with MacArthur on this. So y'all can't say I'm a MacArthurite and I agree with everything he says. This is one of those that I'm disagreeing with MacArthur. Now, by the way, he taught this in 76, so he's teaching it again. So maybe when he comes back through, he'll, he'll change. But I don't think so. 19.1. Notice it says, And found some disciples. Notice it doesn't say disciples of John. So if you're just reading this in a natural reading, you would assume the word disciple means what? Disciple of Jesus. Why? Or at least the disciple of God. Why? Because... All the way through Acts up to this point, and all the way through Luke, a disciple is one who what? Follows Jesus, lays down his life daily, right? That's what a disciple is all through Luke's writings. Now, we know from John chapter 6, however, that some of his disciples stopped following him, right? So that was MacArthur's argument, and I think it's a pretty solid argument, but... I think these are disciples. And I think verse 2 says, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Paul assumes what? They believed. Okay? All right. So, you can tell where I land, right? I land on number 3. I land on number 3. They are regenerate believers in a coming Christ like Old Testament saints that had not received the Holy Spirit. I believe that this is a transition period. I think that Acts is very clearly showing us the transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant. And how do we know that somebody's in the New Covenant in the, in the book of Acts? We know the Spirit fills them. And we've seen this throughout the book of Acts over and over and over. So this is where I lean. I believe that they are regenerate believers in the coming Christ. And the interesting thing is, is MacArthur even calls them Old Testament saints. Let me ask you a question. Is an Old Testament saint regenerate yes they were regenerate that means they had new hearts otherwise they're not a saint you're not declared right unless you have what faith you have to believe you have to have a new heart to believe right so I would argue that these were regenerate they had repented why did they repent well they heard the message of John the Baptist saying repent for the kingdom of God is coming Christ is coming they didn't know necessarily who he was, but they were what? They had repented. They had had a heart change. So you say, well, if they're believers, then why not view one? Well, because I don't believe that this continues to happen today. I don't think that it works that way now. What I mean by that is, is people don't have these stages anymore. I think this was a transition period. So, John shows up on the scene. What happens when John shows up on the scene? He calls for people to repent. For Christ is coming. The kingdom of God is coming, right? What do they do? God grants repentance to several of them. Where do they go? They go back to their homes, their countries. These 12 might have gone to a different place. And in the process, what? They are regenerate, they're repentant, and they're waiting they're waiting for the Christ. But they don't know Jesus. They don't know the full gospel. How long's it been? This is very interesting. Some might say, well, isn't this like the Cornelius guy that we talked about back in Acts chapter 8? Where you have a guy that appears to hear some, but he hadn't really gotten saved. And it's that process of working. I don't think so because you know how long this has been? It's been roughly 19 years, 52 to 33 A.D. So it's been 19 years that they've been walking around waiting for the Messiah. Has he come? Has he come? They're regenerate. They're repentant. They're acknowledging their sin before God and saying, send your Messiah, send your Savior. But they don't 
know him completely. So they had been baptized with John's baptism of repentance, but they had not been baptized knowing who Jesus was and what he had done. Does everybody understand this? Yes? Do I see some nods? Very teaching today. I'm sorry, but i got to get this, and I want you to understand it. Okay? So my take is, is that number three fits best. Is this normative for today? No. Is it? This doesn't happen. Why? Because now the transition has happened. It's completely for, done. Now the only thing that saves is an understanding of the gospel. These people didn't... John the Baptist isn't still around saying, repent, he's coming. But these people were in that time when John the Baptist had ministered. This views the wording best, in my opinion. They were disciples of God as he had been revealed to them at the time. Just like Old Testament saints. Did, did, this is one of the questions that y'all, uh, several of you ask me all the time, even in eschatology class. I hear it regularly. How much did Old Testament saints know about Jesus? How much did they know? Well, did they know Romans? No, Romans hadn't been written. How much did they know about Jesus? I would say that they knew a very limited amount about Jesus. They knew a Christ was coming. They knew a Savior was coming. But it wasn't a lot. It was veiled to them. A lot. Now... That's what we have with these disciples. I believe that they were like Old Testament saints, for lack of a better term. They were just like them. They were in this transition period. And we've seen this throughout the Bible. We even saw it with the disciples of Jesus, didn't we? What happened with Jesus, or with the disciples? Did they really know that he was going to die and rise from the dead? Well, here's the thing. He told them, and he told them, and he told them again, and what did they get? Very little of it. Very little. That's why when he opens their eyes to understand after the resurrection, we know this, right? They go, oh, yeah. You told us this. Why? Because before Pentecost and before the resurrection, before the resurrection and before Pentecost, a lot of these things were still veiled in their minds. I think Old Testament saints, I think these guys had not heard the full gospel yet. But they were regenerate believers. Does everybody understand this? All right. They had repented when John the Baptist had preached repentance, but they did not know the exact identity of Christ. They didn't know that Jesus was the Savior and Lord. They also did not understand the gospel fully either, as we see in this passage. Verse 4, Paul explains, John, the bapti John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is in Jesus. And at this point, he begins to explain who Jesus is. And we know that there's probably more, but ultimately they know who Christ is now. How do we know that Christ, they know that Christ is Jesus? Because it says they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. At this point, they get it. They understand who Jesus is. When it says they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, there's a group out there that says that when you do baptism... You should baptize them in the name of Jesus, not in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Y'all heard that before? Okay. They take passages like this and they use this. Okay. That is not true. What he means by being baptized in the name of Jesus is being baptized in the, in the person and work of who Christ Jesus is and what he did, all that he is and all that he did. So using the Trinity as a... Uh, example for, or the words for baptism is perfectly fine. It still fits within who Jesus is. He is the trin triune God. He's one of the persons of the Trinity. So that's just talking about his work and his person. Thus they were regenerate believers here, but they were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit yet. They were like the apostles before Pentecost. As John 14 16 to 17 states, you can look there. Jesus told the apostles, he said this to them. On the night before he was betrayed, he said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, 
because he abides with you and he will be in you. So what's this imply? That in the future, he's with you now, but in the future, he's going to be in you. Very clearly, this is looking towards Pentecost. Jesus is saying at Pentecost, the Spirit is not only going to be with you, he's going to be in you. And that's exactly what happens, right? Were the apostles believers, were they regenerate believers before Pentecost? Absolutely they were. Jesus says in John 13, he said it very clearly, all of you are clean except for one. It was talking about Judas. They were clean. Why were they clean? Because they'd been declared right. How could they be, be declared right? Through faith. Through faith in God as he had been revealed to them. At that point, they didn't completely get the whole message, but they were regenerate. This appears to be, in, in Acts chapter 19, what we see is another mini Pentecost or a redo of Pentecost. And it's happened throughout the book of Acts. Haven't we seen these before? Does, the, does Pentecost get redone every time a person gets, becomes a believer? No. No. Matter of fact, we know that for a fact because Apollos in the verses before, it doesn't say anything about him speaking in tongues. But he was indwelt by the Spirit. So why in Acts chapter 19 does, do we have a mini redo of the Pentecost again? It's confirmation of that group. Saying that group is also part of my disciples. What did we do? Go back to Acts chapter 8. Look how similar all of these are. All the way through the book of Acts, we're seeing these repeats of Pentecost. Where the Holy Spirit comes on them and verifies, this group's with me too. This group's in the new covenant also. First it started in Acts chapter 8, verse 12 to 17. You have the Samaritan believers. The Samaritan believers. Notice in verse 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now here's the key little phrase. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem heard that the Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them, Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. So now, what does a, a charismatic do with passages like this? They take a passage like this, and they read their, their world into this passage. They say, see... See, we can get the Spirit too. But what they've forgotten is what? This is a period of time when God is trying to make a point. What's the point he's making? He's making the point that Samaritans are included in the new covenant promises. And how does he verify it? He takes apostles from Jerusalem to the Samaritans. He lays hands on them and the Holy Spirit comes on them. To show what? That these people are a part of the new covenant also. That's why the Holy Spirit comes on after they had been baptized. After they had been baptized. All to make the point, these people are true. These people are part of the new covenant also. Do you think the Jews needed this? Oh, yeah, they needed this confirmation. Why did the Jews need this confirmation? Because they hated Samaritans. They thought that they were the cursed of God. As a matter of fact, they would go out of their way to walk acro go across the river, go up the other side of the Jordan River to the northern part of the land, and then cross back over to get into Galilee to avoid what? Going through Samaria. They didn't want to be anywhere near the Samaritans. How can they part be part of the new covenant? So what does God do? God sends the apostles there to say, See, they are too. And the Holy Spirit indwells them. Look at Acts 10. Here's another one. Cornelius. Now we got a Gentile. Now we got another group. The Gentiles. Look how similar all these look the same, don't they? 
Acts chapter 10, verse 44, it says, While Peter was still speaking to Cornelius these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed. That is, all the Jews were looking at them in awe, these Gentiles, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speak in tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name and the person and work of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. What do we have? Another example, right? Y'all all see this. Okay, good. So Samaritans are confirmed to be in the new covenant. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. Who else? Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Who else needs it? There's one more group. The disciples of John that had repented and got right, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. Are these people part of the new covenant also? The answer is yes. How do I know? Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 very clearly explains the 12 disciples of God from John's ministry, embrace Christ, get the whole gospel, and then what happens? The Holy Spirit falls upon them. And we see it in our passage. Right? So I lean that these disciples were Old Testament saints like believers. They were like Old Testament saints who had not yet heard the full gospel. The Spirit had not indwelt them because He was working for the moment in Acts 19. In other words... He could have indwelt them like he did with Apollos in Acts chapter 18. He could have, if they heard a little bit more of the gospel, understood a little bit more about Jesus, then he could have done it. But he held out. I believe the Spirit intentionally held out until Paul was in this area and was dealing with those specific people for a specific reason, to show that they're a part of the group. This church had the Spirit's stamp of approval on it. Like all the other groups, the Jews in Pentecost, Acts verses two, Acts chapter two, we know the Jews were part of the new covenant. Samaritans in Acts chapter eight, they're a part of the new covenant. Gentiles in Acts chapter ten, and then disciples of John the Baptist in Acts chapter eighteen and nineteen. In fact, it appears that much of the early church in Ephesus was comprised of these disciples. Here's a wild thought: when you think about this, think about reading the book of Ephesians with these guys as the foundation of that church. It's very interesting. When you read Ephesians chapter 2, and you, say, you see the barrier wall being torn down between Jew and Gentile, that makes a lot more sense, doesn't it, now? Because you've got these guys that were Old Testament saint-like guys that had repented when John the Baptist said the Christ is coming, and what did they need to know, and what did they need to be reminded there is no barrier wall anymore. You're in the new covenant. We're all believers in one Christ. We're all part of that same body. So these disciples are those. And these 12 disciples become, I would argue, the main foundation of what the church plant is going to be. They were indwelt disciples. How much does this church grow? Oh, man, what a church. Look over at Acts chapter 20. After Paul leaves and goes on back up through Macedonia and back to Corinth and is away for him a while, he comes back to Ephesus and he gives this amazing farewell speech to the, to the elders of Ephesus, the church in Ephesus. Most likely some of the twelve were at least some of these elders. And notice how they react to the Apostle Paul after he gives this long, big long speech. I can't wait to preach this section. It's amazing. It's what shepherding is all about. But you look at verse 36. In verse 36 we see how they reacted to him saying he's leaving. And then he won't be back. When he had said these things he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and, and repeatedly kissed him. Grieving especially over the word which he had spoken. That they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him. To the ship. Man, this is what a disciple looks like after years 
of being trained and made in this church. They are completely committed to, Christ, to, to Paul and his ministry. They love him dearly. You see this beautiful fellowship that's established. I don't know about you guys, um, but when Mark and Stephen are out, I feel like a, an arm is missing. I, I love those guys. This 10 years with those two guys and their families has been amazing for me. That's what church is all about. You build a fellowship and a relationship with people that all you're doing, we're always going in the same direction. We're always making disciples together. And, I mean, there are times where I have a thought in my mind, I immediately call Mark. I mean, all the time I'm talking to this guy. Why? Because I need his input. I need his, and he's like, my brother. I love him dearly. This is what you have here. This is what a church does. You build relationships that are so fine that he speaks truth into my life. When he confronts me, and he does confront me, believe it or not, y'all didn't know that, but he does. When he confronts me with sin, he is the most gracious man. And yet he speaks right to my heart. He knows exactly what to say to get me to get off my high horse and get out of my pride and look at my heart. That's what a church does. You make disciples, you build relationships, you have this kind of fellowship that's unbelievable. That's what's happened in Acts 19. We're seeing the beginning of that. How does that happen? Well, you have to have indwelt disciples. You have to have spirit-led men and women that love God. So watch this transition as it unfolds. If you wonder why I, I'm starting to do all the little uh, uh, indentions and stuff like that, I'm, I've started doing this so that you can see how a passage lays out. I'm just trying to get some of y'all to think through how a passage lays out. What we say, he said, Paul said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So he assumes that he believed. And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. By the way, the question that charismatics often ask you is that. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Have you ever been asked that before? Okay, all they're doing is quoting verse 2 of Acts chapter 19. What you need to say to them is what? Yes, I received the Spirit as soon as I believed. And they say, well, it says there's a gap for these guys, so it must have been a gap for you. No, that's imposing your worldview, your life, your experience on the text. That's reading into the text. That's called eisegesis. Instead of letting a text tell you what it says. And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Well, I knew there was a Holy Spirit when? When I believed. When I first believed. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him, Jesus, who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. All right, so, they, so Paul clearly explains that the coming Messiah had provided the Holy Spirit. He states they need to be baptized with a different baptism. I believe he's referring to the baptism of the Spirit here that started with the inauguration of the New Covenant. Notice the disciples then appear to embrace the full message of the gospel because it says they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. The proof of this was another group included, the proof that this was another group included in the New Covenant relationship was the evidence in verse 6. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began speaking with tongues, languages, other languages, and prophesying. The signs confirmed beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Spirit was now dwelling in the presence of these believers. Now, did you hear what I just said? A charismatic will say that same thing to you. The signs prove that the Spirit is dwelling in you. That's what they will say to you. I agree that that's a true statement for them. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that happens now. That those sign gifts were intentional to show what? That the transition has happened from Old Covenant to New Covenant now. That was the whole point of those. So does the same Spirit indwell believers today? Absolutely. 
When does the believer become indwelt by the Holy Spirit? That's a great question. When? At salvation. The moment we become a believer. How do we know? Well, because the epistles that explain what happens in Christians says it very clearly. Look with me, Romans chapter 8. So, why? This is very important. Don't use Acts as a prescription for describing a Christian. Don't use Acts as a prescription for how it always looks today when somebody comes to Christ. It was mentioned on Facebook this week. Somebody asked, what about the Muslims that see the dream of Jesus? And if they see the dream of Jesus, then later they believe in Jesus and they embrace the word. What do we do with that? Well, first of all, we have no Bible example of that. Okay? We don't see that. Is it possible that God could do something like that? Yes, I think it's possible God could do something like that. God's sovereign over our dreams. We can see a dream, have a dream, whatever. God can do that. However, I would be very careful saying that that's a normative, that that's something that happens. And I have to admit to you, if I, it says in Romans 10 that the way that a person comes to know the gospel is what? Through a preacher proclaiming the gospel. So I don't know about you. Some of y'all might think, well, the dream might be legit. I personally am scared to death of those. I think it looks more like demonic to me. You get a little bit of truth and you disguise it as an angel of light. And then later somebody says, yeah, I like this. I want to hear what these guys' gospel presentation look like. If they got saved, I will tell you this. Maybe when they first got saved, when they really heard the word later on, they really got saved. And at that point, they're so new in the faith that they're kind of affirming that dream. Okay? But as time goes along, they're going to go, no, I know God by the word of God. And that's all I need. So personally, personally, I just want to stick to what Scripture says. Let's just go with what it says. And if this is the way it happens, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, how will they hear without a preacher? Right? They hear the gospel through people proclaiming the truth to them. Look at Romans chapter 8, though. 9. That was for free. You don't have to agree with me. That's what I just think. Okay? Romans 8, 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he does not belong to him. Wait. So, what about the disciples of John? That's not talking about them. That's not talking about them. That was a transition period in Acts chapter 19. Who's this talking about? This is talking about believers and that are now hearing the gospel and are coming to know him. If you don't have the Spirit, what? You don't belong to God, period. Do you have the Spirit? If you're a believer, everybody in the room should say, yes. You're not waiting for a second filling, more of Jesus or more of the Spirit. How about 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, that you are not your own. When did you become Jesus? When are you owned by God? When did you become his possession? When you repented and believed. He's now your Lord. He's your master. At that point, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Right? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Why can we glorify God with this body? Because the Spirit indwells us. Otherwise, we can't, is what's implied by that statement. Correct? We all have the Spirit of God. Everybody that is a believer. 1 John 3, 24. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. How do we abide in God? We abide in God because the Spirit of God abides in us. If we don't have the Spirit of God, we cannot abide in God. That's the implied emphasis. 
God gave us the Spirit so we could abide in Him. 1 John 4, 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He's given us the Holy Spirit. How Nobody can abide in God, receive, enjoy, embrace Christ, enjoy and delight in Him without the Spirit of God. But because we have the Spirit of God, we can. So does Acts chapter 9, is it description or prescription? Description, not prescription. It's not what the doctor orders. It's a description of what happened, a change. So Paul's church planning takes root. Notice it says in verse 7, back in Acts chapter 19, in all about 12 men were spirit and dwelt believers in the new church in Ephesus. This would be the foundation of that very important church in Ephesus. And over the next 30 years, three superstar preachers lead this church. The Apostle Paul, for numerous years, it says two here, and then they, probably a little bit more, and then he writes to them. Timothy's there for a long period of time, and then the Apostle John is there. Most likely 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. John and uh, uh, Revelation, he writes to them, obviously. We know that he gives Revelation probably starting in Ephesus and then rotating around the other seven churches. So this is a very important church. So what's required? A spirit-filled disciples. Second, fearless proclaimers. Look at verse 8. I love this. And he, Paul, entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. This synagogue was a little different than many that Paul had experienced. We know this from Acts, right? When Paul had stopped in Ephesus on the way home, on the second missionary journey, the Jews of this synagogue asked Paul to stay for a longer period of time. You see this in verse 20 of chapter 18. But Paul focused on his return at that time to Jerusalem. So when he arrives back in Ephesus... He's welcomed. And he goes into this synagogue, unlike in Thessalonica. Remember in Thessalonica, how long did he have? Three weeks. And there he was run out. Here he has three months that he's in this synagogue. So Paul steps up and he boldly speaks out for Christ. He was like a machine. He spoke boldly the truth of the synagogue in this synagogue for three months. Interestingly enough... This is the exact same word, this speaking boldly, speaking out boldly, is the same word that describes the apostle, or not the apostle, I did it again, Apollos in, in chapter 18. In chapter 18 it's described, and Apollos was speaking where? Same place. So in this place, Apollos spoke boldly, proclaiming who Christ was, and then Paul shows up and does the same thing, and he does it for three months. I think this is a crucial element of starting a ministry anywhere. Look, no matter how you look at it, church planning is not for wimps. It's not. If you want to plan a church, you want to start a church, guess what you have to be? Fearless. You got to. You got to go in and you got to speak the truth to people that just don't like the truth. Y'all know this about Grace Bible. What we're doing here is really different as a whole, than a lot of churches in the area. You understand that? The, the four, which one? Nobody does that in a sermon. Nobody, right? They just give their, uh, their answer. I believe it's this. They don't really lay them out. They don't think about these things. There's not institute classes where people are teaching you eschatology. You don't have this, do you? We are doing things that people think are crazy, are nuts. And again, I'm not tooting my own horn. It's only by God's grace that we do this. But this is what you have to do. You have to be bold, fearless, go out and speak the truth. And you have to say hard things too. Like, if you don't preach the Bible, then you're probably not the true church. Correct? You got to be bold. You have to proclaim the truth. And this is what Paul did. He went in the synagogue and he did what? He said, Jesus is the Christ. And let me show you. Do you think they liked the message? No, as a whole, as time went along, they liked it initially, right? It's very interesting to me. 
that they liked it initially and they told him to come back. But it appears that it appears that Paul knew that he needed to go on to Jerusalem. He had made a vow, a Nazarite vow maybe, and knew he was going on to Jerusalem. It's interesting. They were asking him to stay. I wonder if that was more of a trap than it was a good thing. You know, ooh, this is an accepting audience. Let me not commit to do what I was already committed to do. Very interesting. Uh, MacArthur brought that out. A very interesting thought. But what does Paul do when he gets back? He's bold. He proclaims the truth. We can't wait for people to come and beg us to lead them to Christ. Do you hear me, folks? You've got to go out there and tell people that Jesus is the only way. I'm so thankful for this class this week. I got to tell people that I'm fairly sure hadn't heard it before. I got to tell them Jesus is the only way at USF. It was great. And I have to admit, some of you all were like, I kept telling you before, going up to it, I'm a little nervous. I'm a little nervous. Y'all saw I sent like three prayer requests. The reason why is because y'all are easy to reach to. Because y'all are here and you got hearts that love Jesus and want the word. But going there was a little bit mm, scary. I knew they might say, wait a second, I want to argue with you. And not even that, I thought they might have been rude. In fact, God showed that that's not true. They can listen to anything for two hours. Guarantee you, <laughs> guarantee you if I went back every week for three months, I think I'd probably get, I've had enough. I'm fairly sure when I kept telling them they're sinners and they need to repent and believe, it'd get old after a while. But this is what Paul did. He kept going and he kept saying it. Folks, we got to do it. We can't be afraid. We can't be ashamed. We can't be fearful of what people think. We must be resolved to proclaim Christ boldly until we stop breathing and go be with Him. Don't be afraid. Notice Paul boldly proclaimed, and he did it by reasoning persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now, folks, if you're a hyper-Calvinist, these are some really hard words for you. You're a hyper-Calvinist, reasoning and persuading doesn't make sense. Are we supposed to persuade people? Paul did it. We're supposed to try, and this means, literally, this word persuade, means we're supposed to try to convince them. We're supposed to attempt to try to convince people that they are wrong and that Jesus is right. Does that fit with God's sovereign over salvation? Absolutely. Is it somewhat mysterious? Yes. We're trying to persuade the will. We're trying to convince them that it's true. At the same time, we know that who's the one that changes the heart? God does. Here's what some of us that, are, that have maybe are in the cage stage of uh, Calvinism. Some of us think, oh, if I proclaim the word one time, I say to somebody, hey, you know, Jesus is your hope. This is your only way, and they say, I don't want anything to do with Jesus, then that means, oh, you're not elect. I'm out of here. That's what we think. Oh, you're, you're just not one of the elect. That's not how the Bible reads. The Bible reads that we try to persuade every single person, even people that are constantly rejecting us. And appears Paul was there for a long time, three months, was talking to them, trying to persuade them. When do we stop? When do we stop? That's a good question. He moved out, didn't he? He left him. When did he leave? Well, I think this is walking with Jesus. I know you don't like those answers, but it's the truth. I think as you abide with Christ and you're enjoying Christ, you're delighting in him, I think he gives extra measures of grace and you'll keep talking to people. And sometimes he wants you to move on, and you move on. But you never move on with bitterness. I know that I've had relatives look me in the face and get very angry at me and say, don't ever talk to me about that person again. Got very angry. And then six months later, that same person said, will you talk to me about Jesus? I'm like, What? I started crying when that person said that because I was like, no way, impossible. Folks, 
We reason and we persuade them about the kingdom of God. We keep trying to convince them. We keep doing it. If they beat us, we keep doing it. Sometimes we move on. We give it a little bit of time. We give peace and we say, okay, I'm going to put that on the back burner for a little bit, but we don't stop praying for them. We see this with the Apostle Paul, don't we? Think of Romans chapter 9. What did he say? If I could trade my own salvation, I would for my kinsmen. This is this compassion and this desire to see them come to know the truth. We've got to be like this. Oh, God, give us that kind of heart, right? Third, we see determined disciple makers. Determined disciple makers. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way, the way is another term for the Christian way or Christ way, before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples and reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannius. What do we have here? Well, there does come a point when he focuses his attention on the believer. Now, this is a crucial thing. This was asked at USF this week, and I mentioned it this morning. Do, do believers love believers more than unbelievers? Do believers love believers more than unbelievers? Do we love believers more than even our family members that are unbelievers? Well, I will tell you this. It appears that there is a, uh, a, le- a commitment level to believers that is above our commitment level to unbelievers. How do we know this? Well, we see it in passages like this. If his commitment level was to the Jews more than the disciples to make disciples, then what would he have done? He would have stayed there and taken the beating. But they're speaking evil of the way, he'll just stay there, keep banging his head up against the wall. Do you understand? But it appears he does what? He moves on to make the disciples grow in the faith. And so his attention becomes more on making those disciples grow. He focuses his attention on the believers. We know this in John 13, 35, that the world will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. And by, our, by Paul's love for this, this, this group, we know that what? Jesus, they're his own. This is why discipleship is so important. We see it here. He is determined. He is, again, resolved to accomplish this. He takes them to a Gentile school. That's what this probably is. And he begins to speak more and more and instruct them daily in this location. Church planting, ladies and gentlemen, making a disciple is much more like a marathon than it is a sprint. It is so important. We see this with Paul. We see this throughout the New Testament. Read the book of Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians. I don't know about you guys, but I read that and I go, would I have hung in there with this group? Have you read First Corinthians, some of the things that are going on in that church? Would I have kept going with that church? I think I might, I might have put in my resume for a different church. I would have said, sorry, you guys are unbelievers. I'm out of here. I'm done with you. I mean, you got incest in the church. I think I'm out of here. What about you? But he keeps going. He keeps going. And he keeps teaching. And he keeps making disciples. This is what it's all about. How would you characterize your own disciple-making determination? Are you determined? Are you pouring your life into other people? Are you sharing the word regularly with other people? Are you praying with and encouraging others to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord? This is what we've got to be. This is what we need. Lord, help us, right? Finally, we see that when you make disciples like this, and when you are determined to make disciples like this, and when you pursue discipleship, and you make disciples like this, what's the effect? Last point. They become mission-minded disciples. Look at verse 10. This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. What? Who was he teaching? This took place. What's the this referring to? 
It's the teaching of the disciples in verse 9. You see that? Okay, look at it real closely. This took place for two years. What? Teaching the disciples for in the school of Tyrannius, right? What is the effect of teaching the disciples in the school of Tyrannius? Purpose. So that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. Was Paul going around to all these churches? No. What was he doing? He's making the disciples. When he made the disciples, what did they do? They went out to all of Asia, all in that area. And they told other people about Christ. That's what happens. If we're doing our job here, we don't need to do an evangelism, how 10 steps to be a good evangelist. If I will just teach you the gospel, teach you the word, we will teach you the word and train you and make you disciples, guess what will happen? You'll share the gospel. Look what happens. This is the Asia that he's talking about, by the way. You see this little dot here? A, a letter in the New Testament was written to him. Colossae. Colossians. Do you know Paul never went there? He never went there. How does he write to them as if he knows them? Talks to them. Because the ones he was training in Ephesus went and told them. So what's happening? He's training them here, and they're going up and around to all of these churches, the seven churches of Revelation, and he's sharing the gospel with them. That's what making disciples do. We make disciples, and then what happens? More churches are planted in Colossae, in Philadelphia, in Sardis, in Thyatira. Church planters. What, does a church, what is the ultimate goal of a church plant? You ready? The ultimate goal of a church plant is to become a church planting church. That's what we're trying to do. I don't want Grace Bible to be the only church we plant. I want this to be the start of a church that goes and plants churches all over the world. That's what this is about. How do you know if a church... This is the question that was asked at D-Men. How do you know if a church has really become a church or not? How do you know? I would argue a church is not a church until it can plant another church. It's still a plant until it can do what it, what's happened to it. Folks, that's why I want every one of you to be a church planter. <laughs> If you're not going to plant a church, I want you to support a church that's being planted. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your plan. We thank you for how you're working around the world. Lord, we think of the church plants that we're associated with. I'm thinking in Honduras with the Pattersons and in that little village, uh, El Buen Pastor, I think it's called. Lord, we pray for them. We pray that you will help them to plant that church and that more people will come to know you and that they will then be a church planting church also. And we pray also for Taiwan. We pray for the Gears and their plant there. Father, we pray that that church will become self-sustaining and disciple-making and that they will then go and plant other churches. Lord, we know that this is the plan that you have laid out. We know that it only happens by having indwelt disciples of Christ. We pray that you will help us to make disciples, that we will evangelize and that we will bring them into the church and have the church help to raise disciples. And Father, we do pray that you will give us boldness and courage, that we will proclaim the gospel to our friends and relatives and neighbors. And Lord, that we, won't be, we will be unashamed of the gospel, that we will proclaim it even when... They reject us and reject you. Lord, help us to trust you with that. Father, help us to be a disciple-making church. Help us to know our own roles within the church. And help us to serve you faithfully, God. We need you. We can't do this without you. And yet we know by your spirit we are able to make disciples of all nations. Lord, please use us, this church. 
We pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here that hasn't come to know you yet, we pray that the Spirit will work in their hearts and cause them to see their sin and turn to you. And then we pray, Lord, that we will be right there for them to encourage them in their walk. We love you, Father. We pray for the Samics as they are away this week. We pray for their safe travel return. We thank you for their service of us. And we pray for this church, Lord, that we will grow in grace and knowledge of you and honor you and be a light to our community and to this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.